A reading from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has chosen to reveal yourself to us, your heart, your intentions with us, what we should know about you, what we should know about ourselves. And God, I pray that you will add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word. You make amazing promises about your word, that it does not come back to you empty or void, but always accomplishes its purpose. So I pray that you'll have your way with us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2015, Netflix had a show that received wide critical acclaim. It won four Emmys and was adored by true crime show watchers called Making a Murderer. The show describes the murder conviction of Stephen Avery and explores whether he was wrongfully framed and was actually, in truth, innocent all along. There was a big movement of shows like this in the 2010s after the Serial podcast was launched in 2014, as some of you true crime aficionados out there may well know. Well, as we, as we read this kind of amazing story and passage this morning about the people of God and Israel and the golden calf and all that comes to follow, we're not going to see the making of a murderer, though there are many tragic deaths in the passage we just read. But we're going to see the making of an idolater. And what we'll come to understand is that to be convicted as an idolater does not require any framing or fantastic lies or agendas or shenanigans and legal fiction, but idolaters make themselves. So I want us to explore three points this morning from Exodus 32. First, our hearts default toward idolatry. Secondly, God's war on idolatry. And third, God's mercy for idolaters. So let's look at the first one, our our default toward idolatry. You don't have to make an idolater. You are one. How, How silly of a sermon would this be if I said the point of Exodus 32, for those of us here living in Silicon Valley in 2023, is to warn us that we should be very, very, very careful when we throw gold into a fire that out would pop a golden calf. Uh, How silly would it be to say that we should be careful to not dance around a statue or bow down to it or else God might raise up an army and take us out. That would be irresponsible, uh, utterly reductionistic, and misinformed. It would miss the heart of the passage. It would miss the, the heart of its spiritual purpose and where it stands in the history of God's story of redemption. And it would miss the scripture's connection with us today, which I believe Uh, is very, very palpable. So what is the purpose of Exodus 32? Well, Exodus 32 is a story about real people who trusted in the real God, but very easily and very tragically fell into the practice of idolatry. We've been saying this word so far in the first few minutes of the sermon, idolatry. But what is it? What's idolatry? Well, idolatry is the putting of your trust or your hope 
or your devotion. It's putting your life meaning in something other than the one true God who you were made to worship. Uh, idolatry says that, that we are all made to worship something. And according to the Bible, uh, idolatry is when we worship something other than Jesus. And the story of the scripture says that only Jesus can satisfy the human heart, can, can quench our soul's thirst. So we can kind of nuance the, the word idolatry today by saying it's looking to something other than Christ for ultimate hope, meaning, or deliverance. And the first six verses of Exodus 32 really underscore the ease by which the people of God can slip into this practice of idolatry. So if you look at verse 1, Moses is still up on Mount Sinai receiving laws and instructions from God. It's been a while. It's been about a month. And so down at the camp, there's a leadership void, right? There's, there's a sense of directionlessness. There's boredom. There's impatience. And groaning is a, is a major theme of God's people in the wilderness while they wander about. And in this kind of season of milieu, uh, out of thin air, seemingly, the people cry out to Aaron for something else to give their time and energy and worship to. They say, let's make a statue and a golden calf to bow down to. And if you were to read the story from the beginning of Exodus and, and hit this moment, this is somewhat of like a jaw-dropping scenario for the reader. Because you've been seeing the way that God has been working through the story to deliver his people, all that God has done to rescue his people. I mean, just... Just moments ago in the story, God has delivered his people from generations of slavery in Egypt. He's performed all sorts of miraculous um, delivering acts. Uh, there was this parting of the Red Sea. There was the, the giving of um, manna from heaven. And so quickly, God's people have turned their back on him for a golden calf. Think how quickly they failed the test of, of God's laws that were given at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. It's like on the first day of school, if you get the syllabus and, and you've already failed the exam, like before you've even begun. God just fed his people from the heavens this morning. He's leading them in a, in a cloud of pillar and fire and smoke, and they, they all of a sudden want to turn around and worship a little statue. They begin to doubt is God really worth following? Moses has been gone a while. I think this underscores this idea that you don't have to conjure up or make an idolater. We are, we are idolaters. If you want to see this morning that idolatry is... Um, something I want us to see this morning is that idolatry is natural for us because God made us to worship. Uh, we went to Half Moon Bay a few Sundays ago with some friends and stuck around until sunset and got to, got to see the beauty of the sun setting over the Pacific Ocean. And when you, when you behold something majestic and beautiful in creation, your impulse is not to say, wow, I'm, I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I'm an incredible person. That's, that's, not, that's not what you think. When you, when you behold something beautiful, you, you give praise to it. And particularly uh, when you see these, these works of creation, you think, wow. God must be huge and awesome and amazing. This is something that's actually deep in the human heart. And so idolatry, again, is not, is not this idea of kind of changing religions or, or converting maybe from, you know, I used to be a Christian and, and now I'm converting to a new religion like Hinduism or something. Idolatry in the scriptures is almost always a form of syncretism 
when you take kind of two different ideas or religions or systems and meld them together. You see in verse 4, after the calf is made, uh, they, they hold it up, and it's like, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's not a denial of God, per se, but it's God plus something else. And that's why it's so easy to slip into the practice. And that's where it hits home for us today, I think. What do we mix with God? Since God made us to worship him, when we lose sight of him, we begin to worship and give praise and devotion to something else in our lives. And it's a big problem for God worshipers in the scriptures, and it's a big problem for us. If, if we follow Jesus, we will struggle with this idea. Uh, the, the reformer in the time of the Reformation, theologian John Calvin, famously described our hearts as idol factories. He says that we create and we conjure up things that, that, that fascinate us, that we want to bow down to and to devote our time and attention. So something I want you to consider this morning, what do you worship? If you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're new to the, the concept of talking about idolatry, uh, don't be put off by the religious-sounding nature of this language. The way you can think about this is, is, what do you give your time to? What do you give your time to to cure boredom or malaise? Is it scrolling through TikTok or YouTube and being fascinated and um, delighted by the algorithm and what it presents to you? Is it looking for the, the, na- the next great experience, living for the next great party or event or food or drink? What do you turn to solve your problems when you're feeling down or stressed or in pain? Do you run to your calendar and sync everything as a, as a grasping for control? What do you turn to for comfort? Maybe it's not food or drink. Maybe it's fitting in at work. Maybe it's being a part of the team, even if you lose a little bit of yourself. And the thing I want you to see about the way idols work is like nicely designed apps, whether they be apps that you've made at work or apps at the, your favorite restaurant. Nicely designed apps are not the problem. Parties, planning, promotion, these aren't the problem. There's nothing intrinsically bad about these things. It's when they capture our hearts and ask you to sacrifice everything for them. See, even good things, work and family and entertainment, these things can be idols in our hearts. They can be false gods that, that make promises to us that, that ultimately will disappoint us. And you know this, money or a good job, they won't protect you. They won't give you meaning in your life. Sexual freedom won't cure your boredom or your loneliness. You've, you've tried this. Do you want to be free? We all do. We must turn away from these kind of shiny golden things, right, that promise us freedom but always disappoint. And this is where the scriptures say, give God your heart. He's a jealous God. He wants the whole thing. Seek him first. And all the rest of these things start to click into place. But it's not easy for any of us. It's not easy for me because we're just like the Israelites in this story. How quickly we forget what God has done. How quickly we turn. Because idolatry is the default setting of our hearts. So that's our first kind of concept this morning. The second thing I want us to look at is God's war against idolatry in this passage. Now, there's a a phrase in the Bible that our God is a jealous God. Uh, He wants our whole hearts. It's actually given in the second commandment a few chapters earlier in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 5. And uh, the commandment explicitly forbids that the, the bowing down and the making of a, of a carved image for worship. 
And God's people violate it right in front of his face, and God is burning with anger. And he directs Moses in verses 7 through 10 to go take action about this violation. And Moses pleads for mercy on their behalf, and then he heads down the mountain to see for himself. And and we'll get to this uh, interaction between God and Moses towards the the end of our time this morning. The the text describes Moses' anger then when he sees the people dancing around and playing around the golden calf in verse 19. And he he throws the tablets down, and and they break, and he takes the golden calf, and he, he burns it down and grinds it up into powder, and he throws it in some water, and he makes the people drink it. In verse 20. And, and Brittany and I were talking before this, the service about the scripture passage. And, and she, was like, you know, she was saying, this almost feels like a stand-up comedy routine. Like when you, when you read this, you're like, really? You know, and it's, it, it's supposed to provoke us, right? It's kind of like the, it's like, it's like the people used to do where they make kids like put soap in their mouths if they, if they uh, you know, use foul language or something. Um, he's, Moses is like, you want to make something out of gold? You want to worship something out of gold? Like here, drink it. Like as if it's like a liquid IV packet that you can just kind of stir up and get hydrated. The the God of the Bible, your God, the one true God, has shown himself mighty to save and to deliver and to rescue and has given you food from heaven. If you want this God to be your God, like, drink up. Here's some gold water. And there's there's some, like, poetic justice happening here with Moses' anger, underscoring the fact that, that following idols leads to emptiness. It leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. Gold is nice for earrings, but not in your beverages. Ultimately, it leads to death. Our passage takes a heel turn, doesn't it? It gets heavy at the end. Moses is not done. He he calls his people together. He draws the proverbial line in the sand in verse 26, and he asks, Whose side are you on? This is the ultimate question when it comes to idolatry. Who do you serve? And Jesus puts it this way. He talks about this. And he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't have two ultimate things that you're looking to for hope and for meaning. And he says, you can't serve God and money. Who are you going to pick? And in the story, the sons of Levi, a group of Israelites, heed Moses' call. And they put to death 3,000 men, the text says. Now, this is a, a very difficult story to read in church, a place of refuge and peace. Uh, we aren't supposed to read this story and kind of nod and approval or think this is normal or permissible. And passages like these are very difficult to, to wrestle with. They have been very difficult for people to wrestle with in many times and in many places. But especially, I mean, in today's moment, right, with religiously motivated wars all around the world and particularly in the Middle East, I just want to be very clear, like this passage in no way supports the idea that modern Christians should wage any kind of physical violence or holy war against another group because of their disbelief. It's not what's happening here. This is an important topic, and if you want to discuss this, I'm happy to chat with you afterwards or pastors here on staff. Um, but I want you to see that the way that violence is presented in the story is by way of tragedy. It's not celebrated. If you look in verse 29, uh, the text says, like, this will cost you your sons and your brothers. Now, the numbers are debated about the the number of people in Israel that wandered through the wilderness. Um, Some people estimate around 600,000 men, over a million people in the wilderness wandering, and 3,000 are killed. Now, this is 3,000 too many. 
But it does begin to explain sort of part of the text when God says that he will not consume all Israel, that he will be gracious and relent. In fact, statistically it appears, you know, he spares far and away the majority of the camp. At the same time, his justice is shown and his war against idolatry is clearly on display. And it's unsettling. It makes us feel uncomfortable. So what do we do? What do we do with this kind of bitter ending to the end of the chapter? What do we do with this idea of God's war against idolatry? There's been a lot of um, think pieces uh, written recently on today's outrage culture and how Westerners are are angrier than many in in generations prior. And uh, one question for us to consider is, are we angry about the right things? Do we love what God loves? Do we hate what God hates? Whose battle are we fighting after all? Uh, One writer, uh, Alec Moutier, says this about this story. He says, The Levites do not set us an example of an action to follow. Their example does not call us to strap a sword to our sides, but it does call us to stand up, to stand out, to stand for, and to stand against. We are called to belong to the Lord and to be on his side and therefore to wage spiritual warfare against sin in ourselves and in the church. Now, here's my summary of that. The story of God's judgment on these idol worshipers should act like kind of smelling salts to us today, to to wake up and to consider that God is deadly serious about our hearts. He is a jealous God. He wants our hearts to be devoted to him and to him alone. And he wants you to fight against, in a spiritual sense, the other gods, the other idols, the other things that are competing for your attention and your personal pantheon. Yes, you might say Jesus is there, but so are these other things. He wants us to uproot those and take that quite seriously. Now, this takes real courage. This is scary. It's like undiversifying your portfolio spiritually, right? You could look like a fool if you put all your eggs in one basket unless you pick the right one. And according to the scriptures, Jesus is the right one. Uh, We love to hedge our bets. We love to spread our devotion around. But Jesus is the right one, and he requires your bets to be all in. The Christian faith then becomes like this exercise of, of putting all of your eggs in one basket and, and unlike, you know, monotheism, polytheism, there's always somebody, there's always some other God to turn to. And the Israelites would have seen this over and over again in Egypt for many generations. And Moses is asking his people to say, whose side are you on? And the Lord is prompting us to consider it this morning in a very different culture, in a very different time in redemptive history. I think it's really interesting how the story starts so simply even playfully, the Israelites are bored. They make a statue. They're having a good time. A group of people are dancing around. They're singing songs. It gets loud. They're having a good time. While the cat's away, the mice will play. Moses is gone. They're having fun. And it turns fatal. And this is the way the Bible shows us that idols work in our hearts. They look harmless. They're fun. They're a cure for boredom. It's an exciting new adventure. Something feels good. It's shiny and new. But in the end, it's destruction. So where is the gospel in Exodus 32? 
The, the story of Exodus is celebrated in the Old Testament as, as God's great story of redemption and deliverance. And if you read Exodus 32 and just sort of leave it there, it kind of feels like God's great story of judgment. Like, where is our hope? Well, this comes to our third point, and it's that God saves idolaters. As grave of a situation as the death of 3,000 sons of Israel is, it's not the final word in the story of the Bible. God the Father offers his son Jesus, the true son of Israel, to rescue his people from our worthless idols. And we get to see whispers of this if you look at your text in verses 11 through 14 in Exodus 32. Moses starts dialoguing with God, taking, taking the role of a covenant mediator, of, of someone who's standing in between God and his anger towards sin and his people who are wayward. Moses sort of stands in the gap and uh, begins to sort of plead to God, do not consume your people even though they do deserve it. And God tells uh, Moses, you know, I might as well consume all of the idolatrous Israelites and start over. And Moses says, that would violate your promise. That would violate your merciful covenant that you have made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It would diminish your glory because the Egyptians would think that the God of Israel was not really a God of mercy. And so, so there's this great nuance to be had when it comes to God's jealousy and his war for our hearts. Because the scriptures really clearly depict that, that God hates idolatry, but he is patient in his judgment. He delays, he delays, he delays. He waits and he waits and he waits. He's patient. He's patient with us. And as we, as we begin to inch closer in our kind of calendar towards the Advent season, we can start to kind of long for this beauty of waiting. We can appreciate it. The Israelites in the Old Testament waited and waited and waited and waited until, until one day when God sent his son Jesus, who was the better mediator than Moses. He is the better go-between when the, when the fullness of time was complete. Jesus takes the full wrath of God's judgment so that God could offer final and lasting forever mercy to his idolatrous people and rescue us from our bondage, not just physical bondage, but spiritual bondage. And this is what you know, Iron's first sermon in the Exodus series uh, was getting at with, it, with the, the depiction of God's people groaning in bondage and slavery longing to be free, capturing our hearts and our imaginations, desire to be liberated, to be set free. And the truth is that in the coming of Jesus, you can be. If we, if we look to Jesus and turn from the idols that capture our devotion, we can begin to experience real joy and real freedom. So as we're kind of beginning to wrap up this series, I think we have one more next week, asking ourselves, who is the Lord? We can contemplate, who is God that the jealous God, which is, which is a complicated way to consider the Lord. There's nuance, right? While, while our divided heart grieves God greatly, because of the gospel, it does not ever separate us from the love of Jesus. Nothing can. Like We stand in a different moment in redemptive history than these Israelites around the golden calf. And now God is waging war on the idols of our hearts 
He is seeking after you. Jesus came and died for for a people who have been and who will be and who continue to be unfaithful to him. And this story is as old as Exodus 32. And I think at our first blush, when we read a story like this from, from Exodus, we can kind of sneer at the foolishness of the people of old who would turn their back on this great and powerful God of their great rescue and bow down to a little statue. Like we think like those people, they didn't get it. But what if instead we, we begin to actually reckon with the, the idols of our own heart? You know, like when you reboot your phone to factory settings and, and it's like, you know, it comes a certain way. That's, that's the default mode of the human heart. When, you, when, when we're rebooted, it's like we're designed to give our love and attention to something. And because of our, because of our own sin and weakness, we're often looking to finding hope and meaning in something other than Jesus. So my prayer for us this morning is, would we consider humbly turning back our distracted hearts to Jesus to find mercy and deliverance, whether it be for the first time or the hundredth time for you this morning? Let me close in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is a, this is a big and crazy and complicated story that feels so far removed from our day, and yet we see ourselves in the text. We see how we turn our backs on the good things that you have done, and we become infatuated with things that make that are new or that make promises to us, but that ultimately are deadly. God, thank you for your grace that um, you love us enough to uh, send Jesus to rescue us. That you don't require perfect faithfulness from us. We we're wanderers. We turn our backs on you, but Jesus has been the truly faithful one. So may you uh, captivate us by his beauty this morning and help us turn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.